And I'd like to ask you to stand as you're able in honor of the reading of God's word. As we opened our worship service this morning, we read from Psalm 90. And the psalmist, in prayer and worship of the Lord, says to the Lord, he says, Teach us to number our days in order that we may get a heart of wisdom. In the same way, we might as well just pray, Lord, teach us to remember that sooner or later we are saying goodbye. So help us to make the most of our hellos. That's what we're going to be seeing here at the tail end of Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul is saying goodbye to the elders in Ephesus. They're in Miletus. They're from Ephesus. And as he's saying goodbye, this is his last contact with these elders, with these men from this church. And his, uh, his goodbye to them talks at length about how it was that he met them, how he was introduced to them, and what his ministry to them looked like. You could say that Paul began his hello with a very clear understanding that sooner or later he'd be saying goodbye. And how he said goodbye mattered to him in how he said hello. And so we begin this morning, Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and following. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with the trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith. In our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I don't account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received. From the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these, these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, We must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. They conclude their time together with prayer. And verse verse 37 says, there was much weeping on the part of all. Paul was crying, They were crying. Everyone was in tears. There was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul, and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. It's hard to say that last final goodbye. Before we worship, let's just pause for a moment and pray and ask God, to instill this truth in our hearts as we lift our voices to him this morning. Would you please bow with me? Father in heaven, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. 
Lord, help us to know that there will be a moment coming in which we will say goodbye. Lord, help us to say goodbye for good, for the ultimate good of knowing that we rest ourselves in the care of your hands. And with that truth firmly fixed in our hearts, help us to think carefully about how we say hello. Let our lives, God, be a demonstration that we hope in you and we rest in your love. God, help, help us to remember that this morning and help us to do that as we depart from this gathering to bear witness to this truth in all the world. We pray, God, your blessing on this time of worship. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen to that, hey? You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 20. We're finishing out Acts chapter 20 this morning. It is a powerful reminder. Christ has conquered the grave. We have the hope of new life because Christ gives that to all those who hope in him. Well, that is a precious, precious promise which reminds us that even in our goodbyes, we have the hope of seeing each other once again. So we're going to finish out Acts chapter 20 this morning, and so I invite you to look. We're going to just read this passage. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 32 to 38. And so I just invite you, as you're making your way in your copy of Scripture, to uh, find your way to Acts chapter 20, verse 32. I'm just going to read this last little section uh, really quickly, and then we'll, we'll pray as is our custom, and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the passage before us and, and to help us understand it this morning. So if you would, look with me at Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Paul, speaking to the elders uh, of Ephesus, gathering there together with them in Miletus, he brings his farewell address to a conclusion. And this is how he, uh, this is how he ends it. Verse 32, he says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. He's saying, I'm giving you to God. I'm giving you to his word, his word of grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And then he reiterates sort of where he started. He kind of returns to the beginning as he's concluding. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, quote, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, He knelt down and he prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. Out of all the things that they were weeping about, out of all the things that moved them to grieving, it wasn't the warning that there would be wolves that would rise up amongst them. It wasn't the fact that uh, Paul is exhorting them to care for the church The thing that they are grieving about here in this moment, though undoubtedly those other things are going to grieve them as well, the thing that is moving them to tears and weeping is the fact that they're not going to see Paul again. That's how the text concludes, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we look at your word this morning, Father, I pray, God, that you would drive home into our hearts this truth that grieving at goodbyes is a reflection on the pain that we experience in this fallen world of separation. Remind us this morning from your word, O Lord, that your people are not meant to be separated. Father, cause us once again to look to the good news of eternal life, the resurrection, which is our gift given to us by your Son, who died to make it so. Lord, as we reflect on saying goodbye this morning, help your people to know how to say goodbye for good, for the good, 
of those to whom we bid a farewell. Lord, would that knowledge transform the way that we greet each other, change the way we say hello, let our whole lives be lived with an eye on that day in which you take us from one another. We pray, God, that you do that work among us this morning by your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The reality is is that people just can't say goodbye anymore. The poet Les Murray makes the statement, people can't say goodbye anymore, rather they say last hellos. Take, for instance, a recent experience that I had had with some good friends. Uh, They had come to visit Shanti and I here in Canada. They were from Texas, and they were packing the vehicle for the really long drive home. And so as they packed up the last of their belongings for the cross-country return back to Texas, we obviously engaged in small talk for a period of time, and uh, all of this is done in order to awkwardly fend off the inevitable goodbye that is surely going to come. Finally, when we just can't delay it any longer, we give each other a hug, and of course, your awkward pastor blurts out, well, we'll have to get together again soon, maybe later in a couple of months. This was just before COVID-19 struck, Uh, so obviously that never happened. (laughs) I made the statement at the time, maybe I can make a trip down to see you. I can't make a trip down to see these guys. I mean, we we couldn't afford to do that, and and there's way too much responsibility and way too many pressing concerns here at home, to say nothing of the pandemic, which eventually struck. But I was reminded this week as I was reflecting on on the text before us that a last hello is what I was really saying. A last hello, not a good goodbye. Did you know that according to a recent Ipsos survey, the most common way of saying goodbye amongst Canadians is to say, quote, take it easy, take it easy. That's number one. Number two, I must be going or I should be off or I've got to go. And that's number, sorry, take it easy is number three. I must be going, I must be off is number two. And the number one way that Canadians say goodbye is they say, quote, see you later, see you soon, or what has climbed all the way up to the top of the rankings now, TTYL. TTYL. For those of you who are uninitiated in the fine art of texting, that stands for, that's an, an acronym that stands for talk to you later. Our phones, and specifically the uh, difficulty of thumbing in our communication to each other, has now reduced the English language down to a series of letters that are intended to say, talk to you later, TTYL. So we can't even say goodbye. No, no, no. Now we say a final hello in the form of TTYL. People just don't do goodbyes. It's obvious if we look at all of the data in front of us that we prefer expressions that emphasize hope and that count on that seem to bank on the fact that we will see each other again. We will see each other again. Now, why is it that we do that? Why do you think that we prefer to talk this way? And this isn't a phenomenon that is exclusive to the secular world, to unbelievers. This is common amongst all of us. This is common amongst Christians. In his book, A Severe Mercy, which is a memoir of his conversion and his student life in Oxford, Sheldon Vanaken tells the story of his last meeting with the famed author and philosopher C.S. Lewis. They had become dear friends. C.S. Lewis was his uh, faculty advisor as he was studying there at Oxford University. And in his book, he recalls that at their final meeting together before Lewis would pass away, the two men ate lunch. And when they had finished, Lewis said to Van Auken, quote, at all events, we shall certainly meet again, here or there. So I shan't say goodbye because we'll meet again. With that, they shook hands and they parted ways, Vanakin tells us, and just a matter of hours later, Lewis was dead. Final words that C.S. Lewis shared with Vanakin, besides, Christians should never say goodbye.
That's how Lewis ended it. Now, there is, of course, something admirable in all of this. I don't mean to be a, uh, an unduly harsh critic of, of Lewis or of the idea of, of not saying goodbye to each other. There is something admirable in all of that. Obviously, we're expressing the hope, the confidence that we're going to see each other again. We recognize that the tie that ultimately binds us together as Christians is the Holy Spirit, which is given to us as we hope in the forgiveness that Christ gives us on the cross and with that forgiveness, the promise of the resurrection, eternal life. We, we all bank on that. We all are hoping in that. We are confident in the power of Christ to redeem our lives, to resurrect us. And so it's not wrong that as we talk to each other, we, it's not wrong that we should anticipate ultimate eternity together. However, we ought still to consider our final parting here on this earth. Psalm 90 says, quote, Lord, teach us to number our days in order that we may get a heart of wisdom. Well, we might as well just as soon pray, Lord, teach us to remember that sooner or later we are going to say goodbye. So help us to remember that we're going to say goodbye in order that we may get a heart for how to say hello how to do it the right way. The separation that we experience when we say goodbye, when we are removed from each other, that separation is painful. And we ought not to minimize it. We ought not to discount it. We ought not to sweep it away with euphemisms such as, oh, well, Christians never say goodbye. We'll we'll see each other sooner or later. It hurts. It can hurt. And what we see here in Acts chapter 20, as Paul is concluding his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, he's saying goodbye. It is the final goodbye. He knows he's not going to see them again, and he makes it clear to them that this is it. They won't see his face, and they grieve. They weep. And so as we look at this passage this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to consider from the text how we ought to say goodbye to each other, why that hurts, why it should hurt, what that tells us about the broken world in which we're living. But more than that, I want our hearts and our souls to be instructed that we should pursue relationships, but we should ultimately pursue relationships to this end that we are always reminding each other that in all of our days, we are always resting in the care of God. That's exactly what Paul says here. That's exactly how he begins his final goodbye. In verse 32, he's come to the end. He's bringing it to a conclusion. And he says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. His exhortation to the elders of Ephesus who are meeting with him there in Miletus is that they should care. They should, they should entrust themselves into the care of God. They do that by holding to his word. He says, Now it's all over. I'm out. See you later, sayonara, TTYL, here it is, hope in God, hope in his word. He says, I commend you, that is, I entrust you, I place you into the care of God. Now, he makes that statement saying, you belong to God, here it is, I'm entrusting you into his care. But his whole speech up until this point has been a rehashing of the events of his life from the first day that he met them. He concludes that way. If you look, verse 39, he says, sorry, verse 33, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, when he says that, you yourselves know, that is a repeat of an expression that he's made earlier in his farewell address. If you flip all the way back to chapter 20, verse 18, when they came to him, when the Ephesian elders showed up, he says to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you. 
That's the exact expression. You yourselves know this. It's an appeal to their recollection. Their memory of Paul needs to be stirred up. Remember how I was when I was with you. That's important to how he is saying goodbye. He wants to call to their memory a recollection of his life and how he lived. And what's fascinating is his life and how he lived was a demonstration of how he's concluding his farewell address. Namely, I am giving you over to God. You're, you're going to have to entrust yourselves and throw yourselves into the hand of God. You're going to have to rest in his care all the days of your life. You yourselves know, and now this is a repeat, this is a, to draw their attention back to how he began his ministry with them. He entrusted himself into the care of God from the moment he met them. He says here in verse 18, how I lived among you the whole time from that very first day. That's what he says. You know, you yourselves know how I lived among you. And and he makes it clear. He prioritized the teaching of God's word. It was so important to him that he was willing to endure the persecution of the Jews and the plots of all those who were opposed to the preaching of God's word. It was important to him for him to preach the word of God despite the hardships, despite the persecution, because it was the word of God that could ultimately sustain their souls, that could nurture their hearts. It was the word of God that ultimately would bring about salvation and deliverance. So Paul, despite the hardship, despite the difficulty, he's going to preach the word of God. And in order to make sure that they could see the word of God and not question his motives and not assign some sort of ulterior purpose to what he's doing, he went there and he preached the word of God initially not taking a penny from them. And if you look at how he concludes the passage, he says, verse 34, again, you yourselves know, trying to stir up their recollection to how he lived his life, which was to trust him, entrust himself to the care of God and to the preaching of God's word. You yourselves know this. And he says, you yourselves know that these hands, maybe he even held his hands up as, as he was sharing these, these final words of exhortation, these hands ministered to my needs. That's what he says. These hands took care of me. He shares that with them in order that they would understand that the apostle Paul was not in it for the love of money. He wasn't in it for the love of money. He didn't need the money because he had God taking care of him. When he says, I entrust you to the care of God and to his word, Paul is saying, I was always hoping in God, allowing God to care for me. I didn't take any money from you. God gave me these hands. They were able to work to provide for my own needs. This is so crucially important because Scripture tells us all the way through that false teachers, when they come peddling their lies and their deception, they come with an insatiable appetite for recognition, for material possessions, for other types of things. Over and over again, love of money has always characterized false teachers. In the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Micah, all prophets, denounced the greedy false leaders of Israel. We see this also reflected in the New Testament. Paul described false teachers as those who teach things, quote, things they ought not to teach for the sake of sordid gain. That's Titus chapter 1. And Peter, in his second letter, 2 Peter, also warned against the greed of false teachers. Paul is contrasting himself with the false teachers that he says will surely arise amongst them. He says they're going to come in among you and they're not going to spare away, they're not going to spare the flock drawing away the disciples away from Christ and after themselves. He says, in contrast, I was caring, I was entrusting myself to the care of God. My own hands ministered to my needs. I'm not a false, uh, a false prophet. I'm not a false teacher. I didn't come seeking money or material benefit. My hands took care of my own needs. That's what he says. And he reminds them, you yourselves know, he says, and And he says, these hands took care of me. Now, although Paul had the right, obviously, to receive material and financial support for his ministry, and although he sometimes did from other churches, it was his practice, it was his custom whenever he would enter into a new field of ministry, 
when he was presenting that gospel for that first time, it was his custom not to take any kind of financial or material support from the people that he was preaching to. And the reason for that was because as Paul would enter into a town to begin sharing the gospel, he had in view the fact, the inescapable reality, that sooner or later he was leaving. Sooner or later, he was saying goodbye. Which means that how he said hello had to be crucial to how he would say farewell. If he comes and right out of the gate, he's like, listen, I'm a missionary here for the Lord. I need you guys to support me, even though you don't know anything about the Lord. You don't even have a Bible to read yet at this point. I need you to take care of me. And then his days in Ephesus or his days in Troas or any of these other places where he was ministering, those days come to an end. He says, well, trust in God. He'll take care of you. But his example from the beginning was, I needed you to take care of me. Now, the message was important. They could trust in God. God would take care of them. It's not to say that ministers are not entitled to be supported from amongst their flock, from amongst their congregation. And oh boy, I better say this now before the AGCM arrives and we start voting on pastor's salary, right? Obviously, Paul received support for his ministry from his sending church and from other churches that supported him along the way. That's not the issue. It's not that we can't be supported, not that you as Christian brothers and sisters shouldn't have a part in the work that is done in the preaching of God's word. You share in this ministry. He had brothers and sisters who shared in his ministry. They were all together as a team working to bring the gospel. But the idea was that as they hoped in Christ and as Christ stirred their hearts, they would look after each other, they would support each other, they would ultimately be looking to God to support them and to meet their needs all so that they could preach the gospel on that initial presentation free of charge so that those people would know when that day came that Paul said goodbye, that they could hope in Christ. And he lived from the very first moment he met them hoping in Christ. Paul's view from day one was, I can endure the persecutions, I can endure the plots of the Jews, the arrests, the imprisonment, the beating, whatever. I can do all of that because it is God that cares for me. My testimony to these people who do not know the Lord is that I am not dissuaded by their threats. I am not at all perturbed by their violence And what's more is I don't even need to bank or hope upon their money. I can present the gospel to them because God loves them. And obviously, as God wants me to present the gospel to them, I can trust that he will care for me. He has in view that some people are going to get saved, some people are going to become disciples, and sooner or later, he's leaving. And they will need to hope not in him, not in Paul, They will need to hope in God and the word of his grace when he leaves. He had to demonstrate that from the moment he showed up. And so that's what the text is saying to us. Now, in our current day and age, we don't like to say goodbye. We don't actually think about goodbye. In our youth-focused, pain-averse Western culture that celebrates leisure and that minimizes pain, doesn't even like to talk about pain, we are horrible at saying goodbye. (laughs) The best we can do, TTYL. That's our our way of saying goodbye. We don't want to think about the fact that the end could be upon us. And this is actually symptomatic of a much deeper worldview. Our world, our society, guys, they don't like to think about death. They try to avoid thinking about it at all costs. What we're actually seeing is a rise of this belief, this idea that science will save us. I read an article, this is not quite a year ago, April of last year, beginning of April, read an article by Yuval Harari, who is an Israeli, he's actually a professor of history in Israel, but he writes quite extensively on uh, human evolution not the idea that we are biologically evolving, although he does talk about that, but his, his whole worldview is that as, as people, we can actually 
take an active role and participate in our evolution. And, and one of the things that he's real big on advocating for is that we should look to technology and seek to start incorporating different technologies into our body uh, ahead of time. So why wait for a pacemaker? You know, why wait for your heart to start uh, not beating properly? Uh, why don't you go ahead and get the pacemaker installed now to forestall that possibility? You know, why don't you pair all these various different technologies you have uh, with a smartphone and track all of that? He's a big fan of directing your own evolution uh, to being dependent and, and coexisting in a syncretistic fashion with, uh, with, um, with technology, with different electronics and different things like that. He was writing on, at this time, the rise of COVID-19 in an article from The Guardian from April of last year titled, Will Coronavirus Change Our Attitudes to Death? Yuval Harari writes, quote, The modern world has been shaped by the belief that humans can outsmart and defeat death. And that's what this article is. It is a celebration of scientism, which is the philosophy that science can solve all of our problems. He goes on, quote, For most of history, humans meekly submitted to death. Up until the late modern age, most religions and ideologies saw death not only as our inevitable fate, he says, but as the main source of the meaning of life. Now, immediately you're about ready to jump in and be like, whoa, whoa, Christians are all about life, not death. We're celebrating life, not celebrating death. He clarifies he says, quote, the most important events of human existence happened after you exhaled your last breath. Only then did you come to learn the true secrets of life. Only then did you gain eternal salvation or perhaps suffered, as he says, everlasting damnation. He goes on, he says, then came the scientific revolution. For scientists, death is no longer a divine decree. Rather, it is merely a technical problem. Death is not a divine decree. And he's just dismissed in toto Genesis chapter 3. Death is not here by God's divine decree. It's merely a technical problem, he says. He says, uh, humans die not because God said so, but because of some technical glitch. He goes on to enumerate some of these things. The heart stops pumping blood. Cancer has destroyed the liver. Viruses multiply in the lungs. And what is responsible for all of these technical problems? Well, of course, other technical problems. The heart stops pumping blood because not enough oxygen is reaching the heart muscle. Cancerous cells spread in the liver because of some chance of genetic mutation. Viruses settled in the lung because somebody sneezed on the bus and spread COVID-19. He says there's nothing metaphysical about it, and there is nothing to see here from God. He goes on, he says, science believes, now this article is a celebration of scientism, not, I want to delineate, there's a difference between science and scientism. Science is built on the late medieval worldview that we are living in a universe that is ordered and governed by God, and therefore phenomena that occur in nature can be observed and studied That as they repeat themselves, as we study and observe them carefully, we'll be able to understand them and uh, be able to propose hypotheses around them, and uh, the scientific method will be able to, to uh, uh, devise and design tests to test various elements of these phenomena, and we'll be able to understand them. That's essentially what science says. There's nothing really wrong around that except when you use science as a substitute for God, which is what Yuval Harari has done. When you substitute science for God, when you hope in science the way God commands you to hope in him, you're not doing science as science anymore. Now you are engaging in scientism, which is, in every sense of the word, a form of worship. Okay, And that's what Yuval Harari is doing. He says, humans don't die because God said so. They die because of some technical glitch. He said, science believes that every technical problem, therefore, has a technical solution. This is a direct quote from the article. I'm not paraphrasing. Very next sentence. We don't need to wait for Christ's second coming in order to overcome death. A couple of scientists now can defeat death in a lab. This is what he says. Whereas traditionally death was the speciality of priests and theologians in black cassocks, now it's the folks in white lab coats. 
With the current pandemic, he says, will the current pandemic change human attitudes to death? Probably not. He says, COVID-19 will probably cause us to only double down on our efforts to protect human lives for the dominant cultural reaction that we are all experiencing in this moment. This is April of last year he's writing this. The dominant cultural reaction that we are all experiencing in this moment to COVID-19 isn't resignation. It is a mixture of outrage and hope. Outrage. Whenever some disaster kills many people, he writes, such as a train accident, a high-rise fire, or even a hurricane, we tend to view it as a preventable human failure rather than as divine punishment or an inevitable natural calamity. If the train company didn't, didn't stint on its safety budget, if the municipality had adopted better fire regulations, and if the government had sent help quicker, then these people could have been saved. In the 21st century, mass death has become to us not a sign of divine decree, but rather an automatic reason for lawsuits and investigations since that death could have been prevented. We, he says, experience outrage. For example, given COVID-19, what were the scientists in Wuhan, China doing while this virus began to spread? He says the proper human response to this is not to look to God, but rather to feel righteous indignation. It also brings us hope. He writes, alongside outrage, there is also, among all of us, a tremendous amount of hope. Our heroes are no longer the priests who bury the dead and make excuses for the calamity. Our heroes are the medics who save lives, and our superheroes of today are those scientists with the lab coats working in the laboratories. Just as moviegoers know that Spider-Man and Wonder Woman will eventually defeat the bad guys and save the world, so we are quite sure that within a few months, perhaps a year, make no mistake, soon, the folks in the labs will come up with effective treatments for COVID-19, and yes, we are sure there will be a vaccine. Then we'll show this nasty coronavirus who is the alpha organism on this planet, exclamation, part, exclamation point that is in the text, his, his words, not mine. Then we will show this nasty coronavirus who is the alpha organism on this planet. And the question on the lips of everybody from the White House all the way down to Wall Street, all the way around to the balconies of Italy, recall the people in Italy were under lockdown at this time, all the way around to the balconies of Italy is, quote, when will the vaccine be ready? Note the question carefully. When, not if, he says. He concludes his article. He says, the present crisis might indeed make many individuals more aware of the impermanent nature of human life, but they should know that this is the result of human underachievement. Did you catch that? Many individuals will face COVID-19 and be alarmed at the impermanence and the fragility of human life. They should know that this is the result of human underachievement. The expectation then from Yuval Harari is that we can beat COVID-19. We can beat everything. He says this. It's implied. We can beat everything. We can have eternal life through scientism. He concludes his article, our modern civilization as a whole will most probably not go back to the dark ages of hoping in God. Reminded of its fragility, we will react by building stronger technological defenses. When this present crisis is over, I don't expect that we will see a significant return to the church pews, but I bet you we will see a massive increase in government budgets with regards to the funding of medical schools and healthcare systems. And that's how the article concludes. Now, 
I, uh, I completely agree with Yuval Harari with regards to that last paragraph. I don't anticipate that we will see a return to the pews in the wake of COVID-19. I think what we will expect to see, what we can reasonably be assured of, when he says we'll see an increase in the funding of, of the healthcare system and science, I think he's right. I think he's right. But Yuval Harari is wrong when he says that there's no reason to suspect that diseases, that death is from a divine decree. The Word of God tells us that diseases, that death, that all human suffering comes about as a result of the curse, the curse which God unleashed upon us, which comes as a result of our own sinfulness and rebellion against God. We are indeed the cause of all that is broken and wrong in this world. And contrary to what Yuval Harari believes, we will never be the solution. This is the worldview which suggests rather than saying goodbye, we should say TTYL. This is the worldview which denies and refuses to acknowledge that we are fragile creatures, that we are very impermanent. This is the worldview which cannot bring itself to say we should entrust ourselves into the care of God. This is not a Christian worldview. This is not the biblical hope which you and I ought to be sharing. The Apostle Paul preaches the good news of Jesus Christ. He has been demonstrating from day one that he is hoping in God, that he is entrusting himself to the care of God. He makes that apparent from the very first day he shows up in Ephesus. He preaches it all the way through. Many years have passed. Now it's the final goodbye. And even in the way that Paul is saying goodbye, he's not diminishing it. He's not downplaying it. Everybody is hurting because this goodbye must happen because Paul must die. He has his heart set on going to Jerusalem. He understands clearly through the testimony of the Holy Spirit that he's not entirely sure what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem, but he's pretty sure it's going to be bad. He has this suspicion almost surely at this point that He's going to get killed in Jerusalem, and he wouldn't be wrong in being suspicious of that because he's been tortured and persecuted and hunted like a dog everywhere he's gone. Everywhere he's preached the gospel. This world is set against entrusting itself into the hands of God, into the care of God. And from the beginning, his message has been hope in God. Entrust yourself to God. The world hates that because the world, as Yuval Harari demonstrates, wants to be assured that it can take care of itself, that it is the master of its own fate, that it does not need to bow its head to anyone. The most important thing then for this world, as Paul is preaching to it, is the exact same thing as what is the most important thing to our world here in the 21st century. What this world values is length of days, more breath to continue living as it sees fit, not entrusting itself into the care of God. You know this is the worldview today because Yuval Harari spells it out, but you could have guessed it before you ever heard this article from The Guardian just by looking at the decrees of government all across Canada and really all around the world. The most important thing for us is to lock our seniors down. James Peters wrote an interesting article a number of weeks ago in which he said, I bet you seniors are getting really tired of being locked down. I bet you a number of them in their late 80s or early 90s would rather just go out and be with their family already knowing that their life is short, that their time is drawing to an end. What the scriptures tell us is that this, in fact, is the reality. Teach us to number our days in order that we may get a heart of wisdom. Another way to write that expression is to say, teach us, remind us that sooner or later we are going to be saying goodbye. Help us to have that in view from the moment we say hello. This world is beyond our control 
but it is not beyond the control of God. It is completely under his sovereign direction, and yes, that includes COVID-19. We, therefore, have a responsibility in how we respond to COVID-19 to demonstrate to the world that watches us that length of days is not the most important thing. What is the most important thing is entrusting ourselves into the care of God's hands. Now, with that said, I want you to look at how they say goodbye, how they do it, because this is how we say goodbye for the good. This is how we as Christians should bid each other farewell when that moment comes that we say our final goodbyes. Please understand I am in no way uh, ridiculing C.S. Lewis for saying Christians should never say goodbye. I understand uh, the heart and the uh, mentality, the idea, the theology that he really had in that expression, but I don't think it's true to our experience. Loved ones die. We grieve at their funerals. We mourn. We shouldn't just wash it aside and say, you know, we'll see them sooner or later because they were a Christian. I mean, if you've ever lost someone that you really care about, if you've ever had to say that final goodbye, knowing they were a Christian, it didn't make that separation any easier. Look at what happens here. Paul has been preaching about the resurrection. He's written about it. First and second Thessalonians. I mean, this is a man that knows his theology and has been preaching it as part of his presentation of the gospel. Nevertheless, look at what the text says. When he said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. Verse 37, and there was much weeping on the part of all. Everyone was crying. The apostle Paul wasn't sitting there saying, oh, hey, come on, knock it off, guys. We're going to see each other again in the resurrection. Well, is it true we're going to see each other again in the resurrection? Absolutely. But Paul is still grieving. He's still crying. Why? Because the goodbye still hurts. The goodbye hurts. He cries. He loves these guys. They love him. It is not natural to creatures made in the image of God with eternity imprinted on their hearts to be separated. That is the evidence of the curse. That's the fall. And the example we have here from Paul is not that we should just dismiss that and sweep it aside and be like, well, you know, we know theologically that we're going to live again, so blah, 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 at the end. I'm not going to shed a tear for you. That actually diminishes the relationship. That undercuts the value. That says that love is not a thing that moves me to want closeness with you. That's really what we're seeing here. His love for these people moved him to want to be near to them. Which means when the moment comes that he can no longer be near to them, the God-honoring emotion is to cry. Some of the men in the room are getting really uncomfortable at this point. You want me to cry when I say goodbye? Well, was Paul a man? Was Paul a manly man? Was Paul a man's man? I mean, guys, yes. (laughs) Like, he shames all of us with his dogged tenacity and determination to go into these places and to preach the gospel fearlessly. I mean, okay, if there's a manly man, if there's a man's man, we can agree. I hope we can agree that the Apostle Paul was one of those guys. He's one of those guys that's just like, you got to look up to him no matter what. He is a manly man. And when it comes time for him to say goodbye, he's like, I'm going to miss you guys. I got something in my eye. You know, he's not like that. You know, I mean, in truth, in honesty, in sincerity, he's, he's hurting. He's not going to hide it. He's not going to diminish it. Which means that when we say goodbye, if we're thinking about that goodbye from the moment we say hello, we should be saying hello with a view to developing such a strong friendship with people in the gospel that we love them and that we would love them in such a way that we would want to be near to them. 
Our hello must be a hello from the perspective that these are people that are going to become more than just acquaintances. They're going to become family. They're going to be some, become so close to us because of what Christ has done for us on the cross that we will be pained when we know we will not see them again. It should hurt us such that we cry. Do we approach our hellos with that kind of expectation? Has church become like this thing we do where we go, it's like a Walmart where we just go and we get our goods and we get in and we get out. And guys, I want you to know that that would probably be the Apostle Paul's attitude, so it's okay if you feel that way, with regards to shopping, okay? If you hate to shop, I'm going to throw you a bone now, men. That's a God-honoring attitude to have. I just want you to know that right now. I tell my wife that all the time. She's like, let's go shopping. I'm like, you can do that. I will pray for you. I'm going to stay back and not shop. But when it comes to church... Here's the reality. We live in a 21st century world that has turned the church into little more than a spiritual, spiritualized form of Walmart. You go to church to get your specific fill of whatever it is you're looking for. You want to go to this ministry. You want to go to that Bible study. Listen, there are people here that we're called to belong to as the body of Christ, the same way that your fingers belong to your hand. We need to be entering into those relationships in such a way that it should grieve us, it should hurt us, it should be painful. If we're saying hello with the idea that these are just some people I'm going to see on Sunday and not saying hello with the idea that when we can't see them anymore, it's going to break us, then we're not saying hello in the right way. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God looks at Adam, this man that he has created, and he says, you know what? It's not good for man to be alone. That is a stunning statement with regards to how Adam is made in the image of God. God never created humanity in order to have some friends because our God is not like any other God in any other religion. He has always existed in community. There has always been the Trinity. He has always enjoyed relationships. Always. And he has never, for all of eternity, been without those relationships. When he creates Adam in his image, that is reflecting his character, reflecting who he is as God, he says regarding Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. That's not how he was made. And therefore, we have the introduction of Eve, created, taken from man, to be with man as his helper, as his companion. All of this intended to remind us that we have to have relationships, that we were meant for it. Ultimately, our relationships should be eternal, not temporary. We're going to say goodbye, but we should say goodbye with a view towards the reality that in Christ there is a day coming in which we will not say goodbye ever again. A number of years ago, I was called to the house. This is when I was still serving as an associate pastor in Texas. A number of years ago, I was called to the house of some dear friends, members of our church, Albert and Jer. Her name was Janelle, but she didn't go by that. She called herself Jer. And so Albert and Jer had been married and had shared a life together for over 40 five years. They had gone to church together. They had worshiped Christ together. They'd been best friends their whole lives. And then one day, Albert came down with cancer, which happens to many of us once we approach that age. In his last year, he struggled with pain. He struggled with being in the doctor's offices perpetually. First came the radiation, then came the chemo. He had already lost all of his hair. He would joke about that fact, that it was a blessing that this happened to him after he'd gone bald. He, uh, he would pride himself. He had pictures of himself when he was a young man on having this glowing, luxurious hair. And so as Albert was heading into eternity, Jer was right there by his side. And eventually that day came in which as God provided living grace in that marriage. Albert died. And what Jer has shared with me on that day 
God provided living grace to us, and now he is providing dying grace. And what she meant by that was that he gave us the grace to live our lives together, and God, as we have entrusted ourselves to him, is giving us the grace to say goodbye. That's what she shared with me on that day. I went there to be an encouragement to her, but she was way more of an encouragement to me. She didn't resign herself to a life of being a widow. She didn't think that this was it. Her life was over. It had no more meaning anymore because her mate had passed away. She didn't passively just absorb the pain of that. She actively continued to entrust herself to Christ. In the midst of saying goodbye, in the midst of saying, I will not see you again on this earth, Jer was very active in serving the Lord and continuing to entrust herself into his care. She focused on serving him. She knew that there was still life to be lived. And so she did not spend her days pining and grieving interminably for the loss of her husband. I remember five years after her husband passed, I asked her, do you still miss him? She says, every day, every day. But today, I am continuing to entrust myself into the care of the Lord. I'm hoping in his grace. She was not a passive recipient. She was an active believer. She continued to walk with the Lord. She was active in, uh, she was active in Bible study. She was a mentor to younger women in our church. She was faithful in Every respect, she continued to give and to support the church. She went on mission trips. She did things that she would never have done. She went skydiving. I kind of cringe at that, but she did it. She did it in order, in her words, to develop a story that she could share with young people on why you need to be careful about making good decisions with your life. She said she was able to run that risk because she was nearing the end of her life and it was less of a risk for her. Again, not how I would counsel you as your pastor, okay? I mean, you're laughing. That's good. Just this is the true story. It's not necessarily what would be wise or practical, but she's in heaven with the Lord now, and so it's all, you know, he redeems all of our experiences. That doesn't mean we have to give him some weird ones to redeem. So she went skydiving in order that she could continue to mentor and counsel young ladies and young women in her church, and young men in particular, about being reckless and being dangerous, As I sat and talked with her towards the end, she shared with me that God invited her to see her pain of loss as the preparation of something greater, something incomprehensible. She made the statement, and I wrote it down in my journal, our present loss doesn't simply open the door for glory, it produces it. Our present loss, the loss of my mate of 45 years, she said, doesn't simply open the door for glory. She says our present loss produces the glory. And then she cited for me this scripture verse. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And do you know who wrote that? That was the inspired hand of the Apostle Paul, who is himself now saying goodbye to these guys forever. When we say goodbye, it ought to hurt. We should not minimize it. We should not diminish it. We should not sweep it away. We should not think less of ourselves when we cry because we hurt when we say goodbye. That is all human, and more so it is the called for and appropriate response of a person who knows that in his heart he has been created for eternity and he's been created for relationships, and yet here and now he's experiencing separation and loss. We ought to cry. That is a God-honoring emotion, but We ought to grieve in such a way, recognizing that that grief, that heartache, that loss prepares and produces a coming glory, which is ours as we hope in Jesus Christ. First Baptist Church, this last year, we've lost several who passed away. 
beyond our ability to visit them and say goodbye. And we grieve their loss. We still hurt. But because of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, though we ought to cry and though we ought to hurt, we can hurt in the hope that we will see each other again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for all that you have given to us, Lord. We thank you, God, that the Apostle Paul also knew the hardship and the pain of goodbye, also came face to face with saying farewell. But Lord, we see something really remarkable in his life. He lived every day with his eyes on that last day. He lived every day with his perspective firmly set on that final farewell, and it informed and transformed his hello. It changed the way he entered into relationships with people around him. It changed the way he invested in them. It changed all that he was as he ministered to everyone because the message he wanted to convey to the world was that he was entrusting himself ultimately into your care, looking to you for the provision of all his needs and the satisfaction of all his heart's desires. Lord, let that be true of us. Let our hellos with those whom we meet on the street be so tainted with the hope of heaven. We don't look to the world for its approval. We don't need the world's approval. We don't look to the world or the world's economy to supply us with our needs. We don't need it because we have you. God, help us to live our lives in such a way that that testimony would ring forth with integrity. Lord, as we look to your son and the example that he set for us, Let us entrust ourselves to you and let our hellos always be done with a view towards testifying to that in our final goodbye. Because it is, God, as we entrust ourselves to you that we know our goodbyes can be transformed as well. Lord, drive that truth home into our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.